and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, September 10th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey everyone, good to be back. Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Good morning, Julie. And we welcome to the panel this week Sarah Carlin Smith, formerly of Politico and now a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, which covers the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, we'll check in on the latest NPR KHN Bill of the Month. The story is by KHN's Elizabeth Lawrence, who did great work for us this summer and has now returned to college and to her post as editor-in-chief of the Michigan Daily, Go Blue. This month's patient had an appendectomy that went wrong, and then he got billed to fix the complication that wasn't his fault. But first, the news. And since we've been off for a few weeks, there is a lot to catch up on. So we're going to spend most of this week's discussion on the coronavirus pandemic. But since we were off and since it's after Labor Day, I thought we would start talking a little bit about electoral politics. The Republicans, while we were gone, had their convention, largely at the White House, which we will leave for others to discuss. But very much missing from the festivities was basically any mention of Obamacare, which has been the GOP's biggest boogeyman in four of the past five elections and the last three presidential campaigns. What's up with that? Have they just given up or is it no longer a voting issue? It's a big political vulnerability because Trump came in promising to abolish Obamacare on day one. Remember, he was going to have a special session of Congress, even though we couldn't figure out why, because Congress was in session. And as we all remember, they tried to repeal it for many, many months, drove us all crazy, didn't repeal it, have been promising a new secret health plan imminently ever since. They don't have a plan. Trump does not have a plan. Repeal is not an option. And they just decided to talk about their great record on the coronavirus. I don't think this was exactly surprising. You know, for the last couple of years, Republicans have made it very clear that they have, you know, I think less interest than all of us in reopening the repeal and replace debate in Congress. Obviously, they are not capable of doing that right now since Democrats control the House and would not be putting an Obamacare repeal bill on the floor. But I also just think that the electorate has largely moved on and is looking at other health care issues. The other thing is that Republicans generally right now are definitely trying to shift the electoral debate to other issues, you know, safety, policing that they view as more favorable to them other than health care. And I was interested to see that in the new KFF poll that came out this morning, healthcare as an issue that voters are prioritizing in the election has fallen behind the economy, coronavirus, and racial justice issues. So I think that that's, you know, largely not surprising that it wasn't something that Republicans were trying to bring to the forefront of the debate last month. And yet the president, you know, early in August promised this health plan by the end of the month, which we obviously didn't see. Is he still going to harp, do we think, on the, the ACA going forward into these last days before the election? I think that's a little bit of Trump not being able to help himself and not being great about staying on his own message. Yeah. So meanwhile, Democrats, particularly in House and Senate races, are picking up where they left off in 2018, going after Republicans over not just their handling of the pandemic, but of their failure to protect people with pre-existing conditions, which kind of fits right into the pandemic, since we're seeing lots of reports of people recovering from the virus, but still having significant health issues as a result. 
Um, can the Democrats use this line of attack successfully again? And can they use it enough to win back the Senate? Um, are people still, you know, as, as you said, Mel, the, 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 the electorate has largely moved on, but pre-existing conditions sort of remain a, a pretty potent health issue, right? I think pre-existing conditions definitely remain a potent health issue. And I think that in light of the pandemic, you know, having access to health insurance, so the risk of losing it. We have the ACA lawsuit that the Supreme Court is going to take up a week after the election. I think this is definitely still a potent issue. You're seeing Democrats who have long said they were going to be running on these issues, um, really focusing on this as we kind of enter this final stretch before the campaign. Um, I think it's whether or not this breaks through and is as strong of a message for Democrats as it was two years ago obviously is yet to be seen, but I don't think it's necessarily surprising that, you know, as we enter this final stretch before the campaign, this is what Democrats are really focusing on. And and our Democrats, actually, it's a natural place to bring this up. How, how much are Democrats going to use this sort of a new revelations from Bob Woodward's book that the, the president knew about the severity of the coronavirus um, in, as early as February, but did not basically share that information with the American public? You know, you always have to wonder every time there's sort of another Trump scandal, you think, will this be the one that breaks through? Um, Will this be the one that breaks through? It's hard to tell because people are still hearing what they want to hear. Opinions are very, very solidified. So when the president says, oh, I was just trying to reassure people, the people who still have faith in the president, and and he does not have high approval ratings, but they're not, you know, they're not 10% either. They're like, you know, 40 something. They're going to say, See, he was trying to reassure us. So we're in such, it's not even an echo chamber. We're in such tunnels of what we hear as a country or as countries within a country at this point that, yes, the Democrats will use we're it. We're in a Venn diagram with no crossover. Right. And and there are some swing voters, and but there are multiple messages being targeted, those swing voters. Trump, I believe, refers to as a suburban housewife or the suburban woman. Um, but there are many messages. And whether this one is the one that breaks through or whether it's sort of a waterfall of dozens of messages or the law and order message that's out there. You know, there's not a lot of reflective listening going on in the country right now. I actually turned on Fox News for a few minutes last night and they were talking about completely other things, so which I guess doesn't surprise me in the least. I also think that's part of why Democrats are going back to this 2018 message that they know work is because all of these different, you know, things that come up, scandals, it, with all of them, it's really been, okay, what, what happens next? What's the next day? They sort of blow over. So you're seeing them go back to what they've proven to work and win them elections. And there is, as you mentioned, there is still this Supreme Court case, which the Republicans are vulnerable on that, you know, could take down the entire Affordable Care Act. And, you know, with with Trump's continual promises, we'll have a good replacement. We have not seen a replacement from the administration and the administration seems to be a little bit busy with the with the pandemic right now. So so let us talk about the pandemic. Um, since we've been off, uh, let's try to take a little measure of where we are. I was kind of struck by this line in a very good Washington Post story this week. Quote, cases appear to have plateaued, but at twice the rate seen after Memorial Day weekend. Experts say what appears to be a, a lull is actually a combination of declining cases in the Sun Belt and alarming climbs in the Midwest. So is having thousands of cases per day just the new normal? It's almost like we've baked in the misery and death that goes along with this pandemic. It certainly seems like what experts are projecting at this point, and they highlighted in that Washington Post article, is that we're just sort of plateauing and we have spikes and then we plateau, but where the public health leadership and so forth in this country hasn't implemented strategies and uh, 
you know, a framework that can actually get us to go much below that plateau. And right now, everybody's holding their breaths and thinking, oh, I hope people didn't, you know, sort of, I don't want to use the term misbehave, but, you know, take wrong steps over Labor Day weekend. And we may just be kind of waiting for another spike to happen in a few weeks once sort of people interact more because of that Labor Day um, weekend. So right now, unless there's a big dramatic shift in how we go about containing the virus in this country, people think we're kind of going to be in this framework for a while until we get, you know, a successful vaccine. Sort of speaking of Joanne's, you know, people living in two different tunnels. I was at the beach a couple of weeks ago, and most people there were wearing masks and pretty careful and pretty good at staying apart. But you could see, you know, there were people who just clearly had no use for any of it and were acting like it's just another summer. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to stay away from those people. But, you know, I was surprised sort of driving up and down the popular outlets there at the beach in Delaware. Um, they were mobbed. It's like, nobody's going back to school. What are you people all doing? I mean, it just, it really was two different populations, you know, sort of trying to interact or not interact, as it were. There's a whole series of reasons for that. I mean, one of it is we're not getting a consistent national public health message from the top down. You know, we see Biden and Jill Biden and Kamala Harris and their small audience when he does something in person wearing masks. And we see the president and the vice president. I mean, Vice President Pence's 87-year-old mother was without a mask in a group without mask. It was outdoors. She wasn't sitting on somebody's lap. But it, it, it's still we're getting, you know, the story of two pandemics. So that's the tunnel. Not just are we in a tunnel. We're being messaged in our tunnels. And then also there's, you know, I think there is pandemic fatigue, you know, that people are tired of this. We have a few more weeks of being outside and seeing people before we have, at least in the northern part of the country, what could be a pretty long, dark, miserable winter. And people are people are getting mixed messages. There's there's pandemic exhaustion, not just fatigue. And we are getting inured to these deaths. It's astonishing to me that we're getting inured to these deaths. But we are. We're not. We're getting numb. Um, and there's this, you know, there's a sense of surrender almost. So meanwhile, also since we last met, Congress appears to have made exactly zero progress in passing yet another round of COVID relief. And obviously, you know, with all the sickness and death, there's still an economic crisis. There's still a lot of people out of work, can't go back to work or who have to to go to work but are getting sick. Mel, you've been keeping an eye on the Hill. What is going on? Are we ever going to see another bill? Um, it's hard to see at this point. I will say it's still early in this, you know, congressional session. There's sort of two paths moving right now. Obviously, there's um, this bill that the Senate is going to be taking up for a procedural vote this afternoon that is not expected to get 60 votes to advance. But sort of the big question is, can Mitch McConnell get Republicans to almost all coalesce around this package and get that 51 votes, which would give him a stronger negotiating point as in sort of these Capitol Hill-wide negotiations. There's also, of course, government funding. Um, Congress needs to pass some sort of CR before the end of the month, which will take up some time and energy from negotiations as well. But it does not appear to me right now that there is really a path forward. Like you said, they've made zero progress since, you know, we were all last speaking in late July and early August. But we'll see. I think a colleague of mine wrote a good story either last week or this week that sort of the economic recovery right now is well enough that it hasn't spooked Congress into working. But obviously, the economy is still not in a good spot. There are a lot of people across the country out of work who really could use that financial assistance that Congress has been debating. So 
I think we'll see sort of what happens in the next couple of weeks with jobs reports numbers and all of that might be indicative of whether or not a deal is possible. I mean, I agree with both of you that there's zero progress, which like there's less than zero progress. You know, Congress is sort of outdoing itself. At the same time, you know, we've all covered Congress and it's like stuck, 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 stuck goose. I mean, you know, they can be really stuck and then political imperatives change and things can happen very fast. I'm not seeing that right now, but we're in a really volatile time and things change both in the political realm and the health realm fast. And this is about money primarily. Um, it's not, you know, abortion. It's not some of the other ideological things. It's it's how much money and what do you spend it on. And in the old days, it would have been a split the difference kind of swap. We don't live in the old days. So I would say it's un highly unlikely. I mean, the scenario right now is nothing's going to happen. But if I woke up one day and found out there was movement, I wouldn't keel over in shock. I'm still surprised that the big hang up is hang up is giving money to the states, which obviously need it, which obviously, you know, with the shutdowns, lost a ton of tax money um, and are going to have at some point because states have to balance their budgets. When yeah. Abbott and DeSantis start whis whispering in McConnell's or Trump's ear, that's the kind of thing that can change things. Yeah, I, the last I checked, there were more Republican governors than Democratic governors. And the idea that the Republicans are just absolutely dug in about not giving any state relief during every recession, there's relief given to states. That's the one thing that I think just boggles my mind the most. It's not that they can't come up with a deal on money. It's the Republicans are so dug in against helping states and localities. And I don't quite understand the politics politics of that. But, yes, um, but you also have um, several Republican senators who are in very tight races from states that have been hard hit by the coronavirus that are in economic dire straits. And that's where you have changes. That's where somebody who sees they're probably going to lose might decide they want to bring home a ton of bacon to their state. And there are five or six vulnerable senators who would fall into that category, some in red states, some in purple. So that's when you look at your poll numbers, you say, you know, is a billion dollars going to help? I'm just throwing around a makeup number. But Maybe. Yeah, that, yeah. that is a dynamic. Um, self-interest goes a long way in politics. You suddenly decide that it is in your self-interest to help the people of your state. <laughs> That's how Congress is supposed to work. Well, let's talk about the COVID vaccine or vaccines since a bunch are being tested. The president is basically promising an approved vaccine by Election Day, which has the public health community kind of freaked out because they're afraid political pressure might trump scientific rigor, pun intended. Um, that has prompted a response from vaccine makers promising not to release a vaccine that's not been shown to be both safe and effective. Despite that, according to a brand new poll that Mel mentioned from uh, my colleagues across firewall at the Kaiser Family Foundation, 62% of Americans are worried that political pressure will prompt the FDA to rush approval of a vaccine, including more than a third of Republicans. And more than half say they wouldn't want to get a vaccine that's approved before Election Day. What do we actually know about what's going on with these vaccine trials? And is the politics of this undercutting the chances to get a safe and effective vaccine? Sarah, you're our, you're our vaccine maven here. So the biggest news um, this week is there are three vaccines that are in late stage human testing. Um, so those are the closest to the finish line. One of those, um, a product being worked on by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford, the trial actually got paused this week due to a adverse event or, you know, a side effect that they need to figure out, did this serious event, which is some sort of a spinal neurologic condition, was it caused by the vaccine? 
And if so, yesterday, Francis Collins, the head of NIH, essentially said this is the type of side effect that could essentially kill the whole vaccine. Or is it just sort of a, not a fluke, but is it just something that would have happened to this person regardless of whether they got the vaccine completely unrelated? That's taken up a lot of public attention. And on the one hand, um, Francis Collins, actually the head of the NIH, used it yesterday in Congress to say, this is actually an example showing you, look, the scientists, the companies are doing exactly what they should do if they see a red flag, a safety incident. They're pausing. They're doing the right thing. They're not forcing anything ahead. On the other hand, one thing that I notice is that AstraZeneca hasn't been completely transparent about what's going on. So the actual um, event and the seriousness of it was sort of leaked out through investor calls, not publicly shared, which I found a little bit odd coming just a day after all of the big companies working on vaccines committed to saying, you know, we are, we're transparent, we're here. In terms of the FDA side and what's been going on, pretty much everyone involved in this besides the president has been pretty clear that the odds are just against a vaccine being ready for FDA review and clearance before election day. Most of these vaccines require two shots. They're enrolling 30,000 people. By the time you give everybody the shots and kind of wait to see what happens, we're just running out of time for this to physically um, be something that's a possibility. The one thing that I think the public maybe doesn't appreciate and I didn't even appreciate as much until COVID <laughs> happened was that we normally think of FDA scientists and career folks having sort of the ultimate say on what products get approved or not approved. The way the law that created the FDA is structured actually gives the authority to kind of HHS and then the secretary. And that's kind of just been delegated down. And it's really just norms that have kind of, for the most part, kept politicians out of that process. So in a way, no matter how much the scientists there want to do the right thing, there is always this chance that politics could interfere. And if we 100% want to make sure that never happens, Congress probably has to change the law. So that's something I have been thinking about a little bit the past few days. Yeah, I've actually been thinking about that, too. There was a remarkable event at the Aspen Ideas Festival a couple of years ago. Joanne, you were probably there for that, where I think it was six um, former FDA commissioners, both Democrats and Republicans, dating back to the Reagan administration, got together and said that the FDA should be made an independent agency or at least independent outside of HHS. Um, because for exactly the reason you say, Sarah, that, that actually under the law, those decisions are delegated to the HHS secretary, not to the head of the FDA. They felt pretty strongly that the FDA should, as a purely regulatory agency, should not be subject to potential political pressure, which is exactly what people are concerned about right now. Right. And, and actually, we saw a, an event know, seven or eight years ago um, when the secretary did overrule uh, a recommendation and had it had to do with teenage girls access to plan B, you know, morning after contraception. Now, that is not the same as the coronavirus vaccine. But, you know, have we seen uh, a secretary do something that the scientists um, didn't want to do? Yes, we have. Um, would we see it now? Anyone's guess. But I would say that was overt. I mean, they said they were overruling the, the FDA. Right. Yeah. Right. But I mean, to Sarah's point, you know, it's not likely, but it really isn't impossible because they don't have to. They're not going to roll out a vaccine that the entire planet could get or that the entire country could get. But there is a scenario where they could give a very limited emergency use authorization you know, for a certain, you know, just say ICU respiratory therapy. I mean, people working in you know, medical personnel working in the ICU, they could just think very narrow and voluntary. 
And yet it would let Trump say we have a vaccine. So even if it's an emergency use authorization would limit who and where and how and how many people could get that pending more study and pending a further FDA review for full approval. But politically, I, I was more skeptical of this a few months ago than I am now. I mean, I think that there's Trump has really it's a it's a one one egg in the basket and it's the vaccine egg. The joint statement from the drug makers was really interesting. And yet it's also it's a little vague and not binding. And, you know, how much of it is we're really going to prioritize safety versus we're going to make the public feel better, but we're going to do whatever we're going to do. I mean, we don't know. Uh, you know, Pfizer, Pfizer is still saying theirs could be ready before the election. Right. I think it's interesting because Pfizer, I feel like, has sort of egged Trump on in some ways because they keep repeating over and over again, we can have an application to FDA in October. We can have an application to FDA in October. So again, as much as they put out the other statement and signed onto it, sometimes the actions are a bit contradictory. And as Julie, you mentioned the, you know, the push at times for FDA to be an independent agency. I think the two things with FDA that are going to be looked at once this whole crisis is behind us is one, the independence issue is going to come up. And two, this emergency use authorization process that Joanne has mentioned it's just never been used before for drugs and vaccines for large portions of people. And so the standard there is really, really low. It just may be effective. And I think particularly if it gets used in the vaccine scenario, there's going to be a lot of people after the fact that look at whether Congress maybe needs to alter that so that there is more control that would allow scientists more ability to sort of deal with public officials because the bar is so low, as we've seen with other emergency use authorizations, FDA has issued for drugs and drug products this pandemic. It's really hard to say they didn't follow the law. Yeah, well, I'm glad you meant, you brought that up because I do want to sort of broaden this out a little bit. The vaccine issue is obviously uh, far from the only one where the credibility of federal health agencies has been called into doubt of late. Um, in late August, the FDA approved, apparently under pressure, an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma with a truly bizarre press release that called it a major administration achievement, something I have not seen the FDA do in my 34 years of getting FDA press releases. Uh, and then the FDA chief, Stephen Hahn, overstated the results of the study that led to that provisional approval. And then days after that, the newly installed FDA spokeswoman who had zero health experience got fired. Not to be outdone, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention inexplicably changed its guidelines to to suggest that asymptomatic people who've been exposed to someone with COVID-19 might not actually need to be tested. So here is my question. Is this administration actively trying to erase the public credibility of its own public health experts, or is that just the side effect of its efforts to downplay the pandemic? Well, they're sort of the same thing, right? I mean, well, if they're, you're they're down, not the same thing. If you're they're, downplaying they're the, the pandemic, you're downplaying science. I mean, this is not an administration that was you know, enamored of science. You know, we all joked about Sharpie Gate during the hurricane, but it really isn't a joke. It's emblematic of something that has been ongoing and increasingly serious. I certainly think there are serious questions about restoring credibility for the FDA, and Sarah has more expertise in that. But I mean, I think one other thing is, interestingly, in some ways, the protector may be, 
and Sarah might disagree with me, in some ways, it might also turn out to be the pharmaceutical industry, which is the industry that everybody loved to hate because of prices. But it's not going to be in their interest to put an unsafe, bad vaccine on the market. It's really not good for them or a drug that doesn't work or anything else. And, the, and then there are also good actors and bad actors in, in any industry, not just pharma. So, But there is that dynamic, too, that there's some self-preservation that might, if your pitch is that you're the life-saving innovator, you don't want to go kill people. Yeah, I think the dynamic, it's, it has been flipped on its head. We have these institutions we've created to protect the public. And now people are like clinging to the industry, which and saying, protect us from the institutions that are supposed to protect us. And it's a little bizarre to wrap your head around it. And I do, in a lot of ways, agree with Joanne that the drug industry is not incentivized to completely weaken or blow up the FDA, particularly the big players with huge worldwide reputation. They benefit from the FDA having a good reputation. They benefit from understanding how to work that process. On the other hand, you know, there's a lot of incentive, though, for them around the edges to want the FDA to let things um, through that maybe other scientists or outsiders might say need to be stronger. So in cancer, you know, a lot of drugs are not approved, showing, you know, they really extend patients' lives. And so there's a lot of places where people have filed the FDA for a long time, say the industry has worked to slowly, slowly weaken the FDA over the years. And maybe some of this is actually the consequence of that. And certainly the president and I think some of his chief health people believe in this sort of philosophy of this right, the right to try laws. The president says that you should just essentially people have this right to be able to kind of make their own decisions and try whatever they want. And I think some of that has been um, seen in the FDA commissioner here who says, we'll make decisions like we'll let hydroxychloroquine out, we'll let some of these antibody tests out, but then we'll pull back. And I think the question is going to become, again, do we really want an FDA that sort of lets things out and then pulls back? Or do we want an FDA that takes a little bit more time before they let the cat out of the bag, so to speak? Yeah, I would just point out that thalidomide was, you know, the, the classic example of letting things out and then pulling them back, which is what Europe did after there were, there were many uh, birth defects, whereas in the U.S., uh, it never did get out. So that was that that's that's always been I mean, it's it's been the continual tension of FDA since there's been an FDA about, you know, safety over potential benefit, um, you know, and, and that's been, you know, and that we saw that really explode during the AIDS crisis, which is where we got the uh, the emergency use authorization in the first place, if I remember correctly. So it's it is this continuing thing, but I do worry about whether that there, there's going to be sort of permanent credibility issues for not just the FDA but also the CDC and and HHS in general. I mean, people who didn't used to question scientific experts. I mean, you're right that I I forget what Joanne or Sarah whoever said it that you know that this whole administration is about undercutting science anyway. But will we be able to sort of put this genie back in the bottle, or is this credibility gone forever? seems like the thing that's worrying vaccine folks is that we may be creating this new generation of anti-vaxxers, not the traditional anti-vaxxers we think about, but actually people that want to take vaccines, want to trust them, want to trust the public health and scientists developing them, but are now um, developing a distrust because of Trump and perhaps political interference. And so that's where I think you see that reflected a bit in the Kaiser poll numbers. It's not just the traditional people that are distrustful of vaccines. It's this new generation. And I think that's really um, that's pushed some FDA folks. They wrote a big um, 
Up at in USA Today this morning, career scientists trying to defend the agency. There's been other similar pushes like that. I'm just not, sh- it's hard to f- get a pulse of whether that's actually changing public sentiment at all. Sarah, a few weeks ago, had this really interesting Twitter exchange with a, a mutual former colleague, mutual friend of ours, and who's now at Kaiser. They were talking about, we don't know inside the FDA how hard the scientists are actually trying to really shore up and stick to safety standards. And we're all worried about it. And we're all talking about it. And by talking about the possibility that it's not safe, we are creating more public anxiety about safety. And we're creating this vicious circle where maybe it is going to be safe, but we're, we're worried about it out loud. People like us are worried. And, and, and in Congress, I mean, people, there are people in, in public health officials and scientists are worried about this. And the more we talk about our worries, the more we're creating anxiety and reluctance to take the vaccine, which may actually end up being safe. But I mean, none of us on this call have the scientific expertise to judge whether it is safe. There has to be some transparent, deep transparency so that people outside of the FDA can look at the data, their advisory committee and others and say, yeah, I'm going to take it. I'm going to have my mom take it. I, they, they did their job and we're not there yet. And well, and even the people who do have the scientific expertise are worried, as you say, Joanne, because there hasn't been the transparency that they would need to know. Right. Um, all right. Well, I want to move on. Um, and I, as I mentioned, Congress can't get anything going. But the CDC put out its own moratorium on eviction since the federal one expired. Uh, the CDC's reasoning is that having people put out of their homes and forcing them into shelters would be a public health risk, which it clearly would be. But how does the CDC really have authority to do this? And what's the difference between the CDC moratorium and the federal one that expired? And if the CDC could do this, why didn't they do it six months ago? Well, the CDC can do it under these sort of health emergency emergency health powers, I mean, it's not the ideal way to do things. And also, you know, it's preventing eviction. It's not preventing people from eventually having to pay their rent. So there's no rent assistance. And um, I'm the mother of an urban planner. Um, you know, it's a big complicated housing and real estate and poverty and well-being and the housing health overlap. And I mean, that's, that's just sort of been punted that that crisis is down the road. Right now, you can't get evicted in most in most circumstances. And some states have additional um, protections as well. Um, so people are not getting thrown out in the street now. But economically, if you don't have a job, you can't pay your rent, and you're gonna owe six months rent later. And then the landlords, it's their income. I mean, there's all kinds of landlords, there's great big commercial landlords who can, you know, absorb some defaults. And then there's smaller landlords, you know, someone renting their attic apartment to pay their cover their mortgage, who can't absorb that loss. So it's health related, but it's not. um, It's not just us. There was an NPR interview last week with a with a woman who was who moved for a job and rented her condo in Chicago and now she can't get the tenants out of her condo in Chicago and they they haven't been paying rent since before the the uh the pandemic so she has no place to live because she's got people basically squatting for free in her apartment um yeah it's a it, it's a big problem all right well finally this week a question i asked the last time we met how's that school opening going apparently the answer is not all that well let's start with college the best laid plans to keep college students safe and prevent them from spreading the virus are not exactly working for what we can tell. Joanne, you have you have a kid who's supposed to be in college, right? I have a son across the hall listening to a, I believe it's a philosophy. Oh, I think it right now it's his election 2020 course. Yes, my son did not get to start his senior year, his freshman year 
it's not going well is the short answer. He's home, he's been home for months because he had a gap year also disrupted. Um, he had friends who were at school and on their way back, all of them have been responsible enough to get a, a, a reliable test before coming home to mom and dad, but he does have friends coming home. He has friends quarantined in dorms, like locked down in dorms. Um, I don't think he has any friends having anything remotely like a normal college experience. There are more than 50,000 cases that we know about on campuses. That's cumulative, that's not right at this minute, and it's probably not going to get better fast. I feel like this is one of those cases where it really didn't make a lot of sense to let every college and university try its own thing. Obviously, it, it seems like it's easier to control things at smaller campuses with fewer students, um, but the fact is we we're now seeing examples of, you know, huge outbreaks in colleges sort of frantically then shutting down and sending all those kids home with or without tests to potentially, uh, you know, seed new outbreaks in other places, um, or they're quarantining them there on campus and in, according to some stories, like forgetting to feed them or quarantining them on campus, but not paying any attention, not enforcing the quarantine. So they're, they're still out and about and infecting other people around them. Is, is this a place where it might have helped to have had more federal guidance about when it made sense to open and when it didn't? Yes. And, and for both K through 12 and college, and also for particularly for public schools, more money from the feds to help them do the things they need to do. Yeah. The Republicans have proposed more than $100 billion. Um, Democrats passed a bill more than about $100 billion with money for schools. I am sure that, you know, colleges, universities, K-12 schools across the country all, you know, really needed that money. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see the consequences of Congress not being able to reach an agreement before the academic year started. Um, I think that, you know, you're probably going to see of schools that have reopened, you know, they might have funding now. And as the year goes on, we'll see how quickly they go through that if Congress doesn't provide some sort of supplemental funding. But yeah, I think that what we're seeing is not entirely surprising. Like Joanne said, you know, we sort of knew, especially with colleges, you're bringing, you know, at these big colleges, kids from all across the country. I think at some of your smaller regional colleges, particularly in areas where the transmission rates are low enough, you might, you know, get who knows how much more time, um, but they're, you know, less likely to attract students from all across the country. But I don't think that this outcome is necessarily surprising for those of us who have been watching this and kind of preparing for it over the last several months. One of the things that's um, been striking to me is that in a lot of college towns, the um, like the elementary school, primary school, secondary school children are at home, but the college students are back in class. And that seems to be creating an extra layer of controversy and tension. Um, people essentially blaming the colleges for creating a situation where younger kids who you can make an argument need to be in person more, cannot do remote learning, can't go to school so the college kids can be in school. And I think that's, again, a place where if we had had more guidance from the federal level or leadership to think about, okay, what is the in-person education we really need to be able to prioritize and how do we do that? Or even just, again, I think a lot of public health people have talked about, you know, what should we have done so we could prioritize education in general over, say, indoor dining or certain other businesses that, yes, we do want the economy to flourish and so forth. But, you know, we need to kind of go back to the basics if we can only have a few sort of things operating right now. Uh, maybe education should have taken a 
bigger precedent sooner. Well, one thing that I learned this week about the younger kids, and obviously you don't have quite the same problem with younger kids in terms of people coming and going, you know, around the country, they're living at, largely at home with their parents anyway. But I didn't realize that you couldn't get kids tested for the most part. This was a surprise for me um, that public testing sites generally don't do kids and neither do pediatricians office. And, and it's, it makes it difficult to figure out what's going on. You know, if you do get, you know, the younger kids who we all agree need to be in school more back into school, then you're not that able to keep tabs on whether or how uh, COVID is spreading. Is there some way to fix that? And is that how big an oversight has that been? That story that um, Sarah Cliff and Margot Singer Katz wrote in the New York Times really shocked me because one of the things they pointed out is there's oftentimes no rhyme or reason why some states or some you know local jurisdictions will test younger kids at their public testing sites and some won't. Sometimes there is some legitimate reason like you need shorter swabs for the nose or you maybe do need sort of a pediatric nurse or somebody that's a little bit you know, capable of dealing with a certain age population. But other times there really just does seem to be no real rhyme or reason for it. And I think that creates a big hurdle because the story essentially seemed to erupt from a case where, you know, a daycare closed and parents needed to figure out, is my kid positive? When can my kid go back to school? And, you know, Sarah, her antidote was that, you know, she first could only find a place that was a 45 minute drive to get her son tested. And I'm thinking, well, I don't have a car if my child to drive 45 minutes or I'd have to rent a car to go get my t- kid tested and living in the capital city of, you know, the United States is pretty baffling. Yeah, well, we, we still have a long way to go six months in. All right. Well, that is as much news as we have time for this week. Now we will play my interview with Lizzie Lawrence about the latest KHNNPR bill of the month. Remember, if you have an outrageous medical bill you'd like to share with us, there's a link on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. So here's the interview. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Elizabeth Lawrence, who wrote the latest bill of the month. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Thanks for having me, Julie. So this month's patient is not having a fight with his insurance company because this month's patient doesn't have insurance, or at least he didn't at the time. Tell us who he is, where he's from, and what happened to him. Yeah, so this month's patient is Shannon Harness, who lives in Salida, Colorado, um, and he works for a company that builds mountain bike trails across the country. So last August, he woke up with a serious pain in the lower right side of his abdomen, had a pretty good hunch it was appendicitis, so he booked it to the hospital, where a surgeon performed an appendectomy overnight. Um, and Shannon was released the next day. But over the next few days, he was in even more pain than he had been originally, and he knew something was wrong. So he went back to the hospital where a CT scan revealed that he had about a brick-sized blood clot in his floating Ouch. in his pelvic area. Yeah, very, very painful, which Shannon was told uh, that was a rare complication from the appendectomy. Then a surgeon removed the clot, and four days later, Shannon was released from the hospital. So physically, he's okay, yes? Yes, physically, he's okay, though it took a couple months for full recovery. And then, as we say, the bill came. <laughs> How much was it? So the original bill was $80,232 for both surgeries. The first one cost $35,906, and then the second cost $44,326. That sounds like an enormous amount of money. Um, how much would it, should it have been? 
Yeah, so looking at other sites like Healthcare Blue Book, in Salida, Colorado is around $12,600 for an appendectomy, a little bit lower for the follow-up surgery. So definitely very, very high, uh, much more than an insurance company would be willing to pay. And to be clear, it's not like he had a choice to go to some other hospital, right? Yeah, right. He lives in a rural part of Colorado. The hospital he went to is the only hospital in the county. Um, and also the hospitals bought up many of the clinics in the area as well. So basically, he was a captive and he had an emergency. So what happened with this bill? Over the past year, really, Shannon has been kind of fighting the hospital on this. And with the help of his partner, who also happens to be a lawyer, he filed a grievance with the hospital to push back on the bills and also express concerns with the quality of care, given the second surgery resulted from a rare complication in the first. So the hospital um, in November gave him a 30% discount, but in March told Shannon he would still have to pay for the second surgery because it was a risk he took going into the first one. But then in May, they seemed to change their mind. They reduced the total bill by roughly the amount charged for the second surgery, leaving it around $22,000, which is still a hefty bill and still very difficult for Shannon to pay. But he's he's currently getting on a payment plan. But he reached out to KHN kind of after it was left around twenty two k to tell us about his experience. And clearly, I mean, he was charged this amount of money because he was uninsured, right? Yeah. Right. And they could charge him this amount of money. Right. Right. So so what do you do if you don't have insurance? He seemed to have sort of done all the right things. There are special programs for people with low incomes, which I guess he just like barely didn't make. I mean, what should you do if you end up in this situation without insurance and needing emergency care that turns out to be super expensive? Unfortunately, the, the U.S. healthcare system is extremely unforgiving to the uninsured, and they often face the highest bills of all patients. The first thing to do is is you really should, if you can, try try to get insured and check whether you're eligible for a public program. Check out the Affordable Care Act. And it's it's important to remember that if you're eligible for Medicaid, it will sometimes pay bills in arrears. So yeah, it's yeah. not it's not too late after you've gotten the care to get True. covered. If you are uninsured and you don't have another option, one thing you can do is ask for an itemized bill to ensure that it reflects the actual service you received. And there are organizations that that can help you navigate the hospital system if you don't, you know, Shannon had a partner to help him. But there are sort of organizations like the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative is one option in Colorado, but they're across the country to help you sort of lobby the hospital. And yeah, there are there are a lot of organizations that you can reach out to, or you can always reach out to us. <laughs> we, yes. will, we will post a link to where you can send your medical bills. Um, Lizzie Lawrence, thanks so much. Thanks again, Julie. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Joanne, why don't you go first this week? There's a, a piece I think many people are aware of in The Atlantic by Ed Young called America's Trapped in a Pandemic Spiral. And he touches on many of the points we've discussed here. The lack of a federal response. Um, we tried this, we tried that, we tried that, but we didn't, we didn't do it right. We didn't do it consistently. Um, he uses the phrase, it's like serial monogamy. You know, this week was mask week and that week is social distance week instead of really understanding what are our tools and how to deploy them. And he ends on, a, I, won't, I won't give you a spoiler, but he ends on a pretty grim note in terms of, you know, how we're, not just what's going to happen to our country, but our sort of tolerance for bad things. 
Yeah, as we talked about earlier. Sarah. So the story I wanted to highlight was from my former colleague, Sarah Overmall at Politico, email show HHS official trying to muzzle Fauci. She got a number of emails sent from Paul Alexander or other officials basically trying to control the communication coming out of NIH and from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease um, leader Anthony Fauci basically trying to get him to say kids don't need to wear masks, kids aren't you know really getting the virus or being harmed by the virus. We don't need to do randomized controlled trials to find answers and really things that are not supported by the current public health evidence and science at this point. And it's just another example of what we've been talking about on the podcast of kind of the reputation of these health agencies being potentially altered or trying to be influenced by politics. And it shows how that's made the pandemic response so much more complicated than perhaps it needed to be and created new hurdles and challenges that, again, you know, you sort of have this naturally occurring terrible virus and we've sort of added these human-made problems and struggles on top of it. Indeed. Mel? I um, chose a piece from Derek Thompson, also at The Atlantic, What Young Healthy People Have to Fear from COVID-19. And this stuck out to me for two reasons. One, you know, we were talking about back to school and we've started to see reports of college athletes, you know, having struggling with the virus and just sort of seeing, you know, the long-term effects and truly how a good reason that we're all taking a lot of these precautions, wearing masks, social distancing, staying home more is not just be so we don't get the virus and to slow the spread, but there's so much we don't know about this virus and kind of a good reminder of there can be some serious long-term effects if you do get this that you might not want to risk because you don't know what they are and you don't know how long you might end up dealing with them if you do. Thank you. So mine is from ProPublica by Marshall Allen, whose work we have featured here before, and I thought it fit right in since we were doing the bill of the month this week. Uh, Stories called, A doctor went to his own employer for a COVID-19 antibody test. It cost $10,984. And not only that, his insurer paid the entire bill. It's a story partly of how a good thing, Congress passing a law to try to ensure that patients don't get gouged for COVID testing, ended up as an open invitation for providers to gouge insurance insurance companies instead, and how in so many cases, insurance companies don't do much to push back against patently ridiculous bills. The doctor in question actually did COVID testing, and he knew that the test actually cost about $8, and Medicare paid something like $42 for it, and yet his insurance company paid almost $11,000 for it. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us sound okay even when we are all in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Mel. At Mel McIntyre. Sarah. At Sarah Carlin. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.